Good morning, everybody. Happy game week once again, and welcome to episode 10 of the In All Kinds of Weather forecast. I am your host, Dustin Smith, and you can follow me on Twitter at I-A-K-O-W-Dustin. Yes, that's right. If you haven't already figured out, I have a new Twitter account that is specifically for this podcast and all things Gator football. Again, that is I-A-K-O-W. Dustin. That stands for in all kinds of weather, Dustin. And I am so happy to finally be hashtag for the brand. Of course, we have in all kinds of weather founder and lead writer, Neil Schulman with us today. You can follow him at all kinds weather. And as I'm very pleased to announce, this is the second episode in a row that we've had the full gang together. And with that said, we have key contributor Casey Hampton with us today as well. And you can follow him on Twitter at champton85. It is so great to have everybody on here, and we finally have a football game to discuss. The Gators came out victorious in their opening game against Ole Miss. They won 51-35. to And Casey, you were at the game. What are your thoughts? Before we really get into in-depth analysis, how was the experience being at the game? You know, I'll tell you, I have been to now 12 of 14 SEC stadiums. I am missing Texas A&M and Auburn, but I will tell you, the people of Oxford, the fans of Ole Miss, uh, and just the restaurants, um, the students, they were all great. There were only three instances that I can count. And it was at the game, um, and these were three Old Miss frat boys who probably had too much to drink before the 11 o'clock kickoff that were a little obnoxious uh, towards the Gator bench. But uh, the stadium is definitely intimate. It's, it's smaller. They do not have TVs in the stadium, so if you're hoping to keep up with any other games, you won't be able to do that. They do serve alcoholic beverages, if, if that is of interest to you. But uh, I definitely would 100% go back. I, I enjoyed the experience, and... Hopefully next time I go over there, uh, the Grove will be open. The, the Grove is definitely a bucket list item. Yeah, man. Yeah. I, I agree. It's definitely a bucket list item. And it's very unfortunate that, that the Gators don't get the, to play. Adel miss a ton, especially with the way that the schedule for, for the SEC is currently formatted. So hopefully we might see a change in that. Fingers we'll crossed for that. I would much rather play in Oxford than I would in Columbia, Columbia Missouri. Well, we got to get Mizzou out of the East. That that just doesn't make sense geographically. And, and they don't have any – I mean, first of all, I didn't want them in the SEC, so let's start with that. Second of all – Second. Second of all, they don't belong in the East geographically or, or in any other sense. They don't have rivalries with any team in the East. The only real rival they have, so to speak, is A&M, and they don't even play them anymore. The SEC just decided to create – a rivalry with them in Arkansas called the battle line rivalry. You, you can't just plop a team down and force them to be rivals with something. It doesn't work that way, but you know, that, that's a discussion for a whole different day. Yeah. Definitely discussion for another episode. Maybe we can dedicate an entire podcast to uh, conspiracy theories and potential concepts for uh, interconference realignment and so on and so forth, but we'll leave it at that. I'm not going to lie. I'm feeling a little left out here. I mean, we're, ask, we're asking Casey all about his weekend in Oxford, and I can't even get a, how you doing? That, that's kind of messed up, guys. I'm, I'm being left high and dry here. <laughs> hey, Shulman, 
Tell me all about your life. <laughs> okay, Seinfeld. Neil, how you doing? <laughs> Seinfeld. How's life in New Jersey? You got a pastrami on rye? No, actually, I did a. I didn't eat anything today. Today's a, a human holiday kind of um, day of atonement. The Jewish, uh, yeah, the Jewish day of atonement, Yom Kippur, day yeah, of reflection, really. Um, I think it's a good thing to do every now and then, regardless of your religion. But anyway, um, now it's back to business. It's back to the real world, which for this podcast means a world in which Florida is one and zero, and Florida is number three in the country. Let's go but also a world in which Florida does have some things they have to work on. And we're going to get into that momentarily, but first we got to take care of our partner organizations. First is the Gator Good Foundation, which in case you aren't familiar is a nonprofit organization that works to send an underprivileged Gator fan to the swamp. We've been doing this since 2018, not going to happen this year thanks to COVID-19, but we are looking to send a care package to a deserving fan this year to enhance their Gator cheering experience virtually. And we are also looking for someone to send to a game at some point in the future, whenever it becomes safe to do so. So if you believe that you or someone you know is worthy, please email us at GatorGoodFoundation at gmail.com. That's GatorGoodFoundation at gmail.com. Second, Shout out to our sponsor, Stingray Branding. These folks will put a sting into your marketing and they'll deliver results that will wow your clients. Whether it's web design, logo design, branding, graphic design, social media management, search engine optimization, marketing strategy, or mobile app design, Stingray Branding has you covered. If you or someone you know needs professional help in any of the above, here are two great reasons why you should choose Stingray Branding. Number one, it's a veteran owned business don't think there's a better way to properly thank those who serve our country than by giving them business. And two, it's run by a Gator. It is run by a Florida Gator fan. So not only do they do great work, which is the most important thing, but they do great work and they're owned by a Florida Gator fan who happens to be a United States veteran. To learn more about their services and rates, go to stingraybranding.com. That is stingraybranding.com. With that said, Let's talk some football, guys. So, again, as we mentioned to start the episode, the Gators beat Ole Miss 51-35. to Yes, the Gators put a 50-burger on the Ole Miss Rebels and the Fighting Lane Giffins. So, the Gators looked pretty darn good offensively. Neil, you, you have an eye for the game like not many people I know. Beyond the – the fantastic stats, which we'll get to in a few seconds. Was there anything that, that stood out to you that surprised you? I wouldn't say that there was anything that particularly surprised me, but I would say that there were definitely some things that I was wondering about before the game that played out to a more dramatic extent than I would have expected. So let's start with the negatives because there are fewer of them and let's get them out of the way and save the more fun stuff for last. Tackling, can't not mention that. And really you can say the defense as a whole, but specifically the tackling. I've been sort of gesticulating about that ever since Ole Miss was announced as the opening opponent because we knew they had athletes and we know that Florida doesn't tackle well in openers. 
So you pair the two together and you might have a recipe for disaster. And sure enough, it was a problem. In fairness, Florida's defense was heavily depleted. No James Houston, no Brad Stewart, no Jeremiah Moon, no Kyrie Campbell. Had Sean Davis for about five plays, and then he got ejected for targeting on the first series of the game. But there were starters and some really good players at that who missed tackles and and looked bad doing so. And here's where, keep it respectful, but keep it real, the unofficial motto of this podcast really comes into play. Marco Wilson is a sensational corner for Florida. He looked awful on the Jerry on Ely touchdown run early in the third quarter. He just looked like he didn't know what he was doing. And I know he's a really good player. I've seen him display sensational form. He just looked bad. Now it's understandable because these guys went seven months without tackling. There was no spring ball. I've said this. I think lots of people have been saying this and wondering about this. And I, I think it's something that Florida is going to get better at as they get more reps in practice and against live opponents. But as it stands right this second, having not yet seen that improvement, this is something that's fair to point out as something that has got to be addressed. So I'm going to take a different take with this. Not only tackling, being at the game, I was at the 50-yard line right behind the Gator bench. And so I had a really good vantage point uh, to see the whole field. The biggest problem that I saw was the secondary The secondary has issues, and the secondary got burned multiple times, particularly Donovan Steiner was burned um, several times. All it was was a simple matter of if a pass was in the air, just turn around. Uh, the second point, I don't know what Emory Jones did this offseason. It was not impressive to me to watch him play, and I know there are a lot of people that – want him to be the starter or want him to get significantly more playing time. He did not demonstrate to me in that game that he had progressed in a year that a year three player, um, because that's what he is folks. He played, he played in 2018. He played in 2019. We're now in 2020. This is, he's entering into year three. The third point um, I'm going to say is actually a positive point. We only punted the ball one time. And we punted it for 47 yards. Shout out Jacob Finn. He punted for 47 yards in his first punt um, for our team. So, you know, this is the first time in a long time that we haven't had a Townsend. Finn looked to be a guy that we can rely upon. Yeah, I think that's a pretty fair set of takes there. I I do think you're, you seem to be trying to poke the Emory high with a stick, but you can fight that battle on Twitter. Yeah, I mean, I just went negative with my first one. Casey went both positive and negative. So I guess I'll give my positive takeaways because there were obviously a ton of them. Uh, the big one's Kyle Pitts because, yeah, of course it is. He had five touchdown catches last year, and he's already 80% of the way to matching that number this year through one game. Four touchdown catches in one game. There's not a team in college football that he will not be a problem for. He's just too athletic for linebackers to cover because he can roast them with wide receiver-like agility and speed, but he's too big for cornerbacks to cover because he can just bully them with his tight end-shaped body. And we knew this coming into the season, but my takeaway is just how utterly helpless the Rebels were against him. That last touchdown of the game was Pitts versus two defenders. And, you know, you like to talk about 50-50 balls where you got one receiver versus one cornerback. This is a 33.366.7 ball where it's him versus two defenders and he beats them both for it. Granted, one of them didn't turn his head around until it was too late, but that's still 
live human matter that Pitts has to navigate around to catch the ball, and he did. So at this point, I don't think the debate is if he's the best tight end in the country. I think the debate is just how far behind him the second best tight end in the country is. It amazes me he was a third-team All-American. You know, give me the two tight ends that were better than him. But expound upon Neil's point, Kyle Trask did not make a single pass that wasn't catchable all day. I mean, all of these passes were catchable um, by the Gator receivers, whereas Emory Jones's one pass, and you can call me that I'm, be, I'm poking them with the stick, his one pass was an ill-advised throw that was clearly going to be an interception, triple coverage. I, you throw it away and you live for another day. And call me crazy, and I know they're going to come after me on Twitter. I'm sorry, that is a Felipe Franks mistake. Not throwing it away and living for another day, that's a problem. Well, Jones did have a bomb to a wide open Trayvon Grimes who, I mean, that, that was basically a route on air, but he did, he did, he did complete a pass deep down the field. Ole Miss probably should have thought about maybe covering Grimes, but that's another issue. He did complete a pass. Uh, Trask did throw, not, not counting throwaways. I think he did throw two balls that were uncatchable. The overwhelming majority of his throws were definitely catchable balls where the either the receiver had it poked away by a defender by a good play or the receiver just fell down mid route. But we have to talk about one of the reasons why Kyle Trask is making all these accurate throws. And it's really the, the biggest thing that stuck out to me aside from the obvious one in Pitts. the offensive line appear to take a step forward. They mostly kept Trask on his feet. There was one blindside hit Trask never saw coming, but for the most part, they did their job. And you know what? Run blocking. They took a beating from the fan base last year for not doing their jobs in run blocking. On Saturday against the Rebels, they looked competent. Not sensational, but competent in run blocking. Now, DeLance are, I think, a lot of fans' favorite target for anything that goes wrong on the offensive line. Did get called for a holding play. That went for some decent yardage. So, he wiped that off the board. That's not good. But for the most part, he did his job. The guys were jumping off the snap. They looked angry, particularly Brett Hagee, but really all of them. They made their blocks. They really fired off the line. They looked like they wanted to do it. Remember in our season preview, Ben Troop is talking. It's, it's a want to thing. You have to want to do it for your teammates. These guys looked like they wanted to do it. Now, whether or not this is because the Rebels' defensive front is that awful or Florida's line has actually taken a step forward is yet to be determined. We'll find out soon enough. But either way, the line does seem to be an improvement from last year. Well, we also get Ethan White back. Yes, true. In the next game as well. So that'll, that, that, that can only make the, the line even better. Yeah, I guess, guys, I, I agree. And looking at the rushing stats for the game, I mean, when you're looking at there's Tony, who's absolute cheat code of a player. Um, he averaged 27.5 yards per carry, mainly because he only had two carries and got 55 yards. We look at the main workhorse running backs, Damian Pierce and Malik Davis. Uh, they averaged six and seven yards per carry, respectively. That's a big deal. I mean, I know Ole Miss doesn't have the best defensive line or the, li- the best front seven in the world to say the least, but getting that amount of yards on anybody per carry is a pretty big deal. 
And for the most part, that's a testament to how well the offensive line did. I, I can't remember the play specifically. Maybe Neil can enlighten all of us. But there was a play where it appeared that Brett Hagee drove the, uh, the defensive lineman about 12 yards down the field. <laughs> oh, and yeah, Michael Orr's Pancaked him. I do have one other good shout-out to give. I was really impressed with Kadarius Tony. A, he was running routes, which we haven't seen him do much of, in, much of his time at Florida. He caught touchdowns rather than running them in, which is something new for him as well. But something that really impressed me, Old Miss punted the ball to us and Kadarius Tony signaled for a fair catch. And I was like, well, wait a minute. These guys aren't, you know, 30 feet from him. But he called it because he knew that ball was hanging in the air and he wouldn't have a return that was worth getting hit for, which is something that I've always had an issue with that he wants to run when they're, when you shouldn't run. It looks like he has grown up and grown into the system that Dan Mullen's creating at Florida. Here's something that I think a lot of Gator fans will enjoy hearing. The catch that Kadarius Tony made in the end zone against Ole Miss was the first time he has caught a touchdown pass in the end zone. He's caught them short of the end zone and read them in, like Casey said. He caught a slip screen from Felipe Franks against Miami in 2019 and ran that 66 yards to the end zone. He caught another screen from Franks against South Carolina that he ran 18 yards for a touchdown. He had a chance to catch one in the end zone against Tennessee in 2017 as a freshman. Probably should have caught that one. He had it in his hands. He dropped it as he fell to the ground, actually right in the exact same spot where Tyree caught this the bomb from Franks about 10 minutes later probably should have had that but yeah this was the first time he has caught a pass with both feet in the end zone where when he caught it and the instant he had possession of it it was ruled a touchdown and that means he's becoming more versatile he has come a long way that you're not just respecting him now as an x-factor and a human joystick but now you have to respect him on routes you know going up over the top and catching it in the back of the end zone that's something that you haven't had to cover for Kadarius Tony before. Yeah, I completely agree with, with what you guys are saying. Kadarius Tony looks like an every down receiver. He's not just a gimmick player or a guy who give the ball to kind of change things up and keep the defense on edge. He's playing very well. I was very impressed with what he did when he didn't have the ball in his hands. I you know, I, I know that he may not be the caliber blocker in the run game. Uh, like Grimes or maybe a larger player. I saw Shorter do some things in that in the blocking game that, that helped a little bit. But Kadaris Tony certainly wasn't afraid to get up in a linebacker or a corner or a safety uh, when he needed to. And that, and that really impressed me. And on top of that, Malik Davis, he played exceptional. And from a guy that, that um, had a, a gruesome knee injury to uh, just this past game making the type of cuts that he made. I mean, he made one move that completely ripped a guy uh, out of his footing, straight to the ground. Very spectacular play. And I think it's a testament of what's to come. I, I, I mean, Damian Pierce is an excellent running back, but when you're looking at 2020 and the outlook of the Florida rushing game, I think the buck stops with Malik Davis. I think he's going to carry the, the team on his shoulders in that, in that phase of the game. And it's going to be exciting to see how, um, the rest of these games go, especially when you're playing 
up against teams that have better secondaries, like we'll see uh, when the Gators play Texas A&M and assuming when LSU gets Stanley back, uh, you know, that should be more of a challenge from a secondary standpoint. Obviously, uh, they didn't challenge Mississippi State too much in that game. But, yeah, it'll be exciting. On, on that note, cheers to Mike Leach. Big debut uh, for him in, in Stark Vegas, winning in uh, Death Valley. Anyway, so I do want to hit on a few key stats. Kyle Trask was 30 of 42 for 416 yards. That averaged 9.9 yards per attempt. That's pretty great. He played exceptional. We already we already mentioned it. There's a specific throw that I really wanted to highlight. So Kyle Trask threw a ball to Jacob Copeland that he, Jacob Copeland actually dropped. But but he threw that pass. It was literally perfect. If you if you watch the mechanics of the throw, the ball flight, the point where the ball hit Jacob Copeland in the hands, everything was near perfect from from a quarterback standpoint. Even the placement amongst the uh, the crowd of Ole Miss defenders. Usually, it's ill advised to throw the ball um, in that tight of coverage. But really, from when I, when I played football in high school, uh, we actually considered that to be sort of an, o- an open receiver. Yeah, it's a little tighter than you want, but when 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 the ball hit uh, Jacob Copeland's hands, he was not contested until a few milliseconds later when he got pounded, and Jacob Copeland could have made that catch. Regardless of whether he made the catch or not, that throw was incredible. It That, that throw – was a Joe Burrow caliber throw. Anyway, so looking back to the 2017 season, uh, the Gators had some talent uh, for Felipe Franks to get the ball to, but Felipe Franks cannot get the ball to the right guy. Now we're seeing a man in Kyle Trask who is getting the ball to the right players. He's getting the ball um, out his hands quickly and I think that that goes a long way in saying that Kyle Trask is understanding the system he knows where he needs to go and he's making the right throw so guys I know we could talk for hours about the Gators performance on the field and the product they put out especially when it comes to offense and observations we brought are observations that are pretty pretty known you know different Pudnants and prosecutors have talked about these things. So we're going to start a new segment that I like to call Hidden Gems. So you're probably asking, what is Hidden Gem? So this is where we're going to name one thing that we noticed that may have flown under the radar. It could be an unsung hero of the game, a play you think most people won't remember, or something that people just really aren't talking about. But it's something that you don't think should be forgotten. Let's get right to it. Neil, what would be your hidden gem from this game? Well, I'll go one positive, one negative. Positive, I'm going to steal Casey's, or not, actually, he stole mine because I had this planned out because I cut the game up earlier today and noticed this. How about a hand for Jacob Finn? How about the new punter that Florida has? Got to use all three phases of the game, and Florida's had Townsend Brothers doing the punting since 2015, and I think that's something that maybe some fans have started taking for granted that, you know, we'd always have elite punters and you no, know, you got to recruit more. You got to keep getting them through. And Jacob Finn did a great job. 
one punt from his own 44-yard line, and he just dropped a pin down inside the 10-yard line. Now, one play does not set a rule, so you need more of a sample size than that before we say, yeah, he's filled the Townsend brothers' shoes, no problem, but he is off to a good start. And the second hidden gem is one that I think should be remembered. It's a play I'm going to point to, and it more specifically, it's a referee's call on a play that I'm going to point to. If Momo Sonogo does not get flagged for roughing the passer on Kyle Trask on a pass that was incomplete on third and eight and would have forced the punt, this game might have gotten a lot scarier down the stretch. Florida was up 44-21, but their offense had suddenly begun stalling and drives were now ending in three points with field goals instead of seven, and Ole Miss had just cut it to 44-29. If that flag isn't thrown, the pass that's incomplete sets up a fourth down, Florida punts, Ole Miss gets the ball back with 10 minutes to go, and all of a sudden we might be looking at a one-score game in crunch time, the way our defense played most of the day. Instead, Florida gets 15 free yards and now with new life drives right down the field for the fatal touchdown. I thought the call was questionable. I'm not going to shed a tear for Ole Miss fans because I've got a whole thread on Twitter detailing all the laundry list of times the SEC officials have screwed Florida over. But I do think that's something that should not be forgotten about. Florida did get a little third-party help in this win. And had they not gotten it, the game might have gone a lot differently down the stretch. Hey, I'm sure Casey can comment about the booing that took place ensuing that call. The next seven plays, they just booed and booed and booed. But um, I'm going to um, go more positive than uh, Debbie Downer-Shulman over there. I was really impressed with just the, the offensive line cohesion. I think that's, that's an obvious but really, if we're looking at that from a more micro standpoint, I was really impressed with Brett Heggie. Clearly, he's the leader on that, the, on that squad. And that is often on many teams, the offensive line, uh, the big uglies, are an, are an unsung hero group because we need them to be good if we're going to be good, but they're not necessarily jerseys that you go out and buy or players that you come out and celebrate. But Brett Heggie clearly has been with this program in good times and in bad. So I'm going to say that he's a hidden gem to really lead that group this year. Um, and he had a really good game just with making sure that people were staying on assignments, keeping Trask upright and good snaps um, all day, that there were no high snaps or low snaps or botched snaps. So I'm going to um, put that as a hidden gem. But a hidden gem to go along with Debbie Downer Schulman is I'm really concerned about play calling on third down. I don't care what team you are a fan of or what team you're rooting for or how young they are or how many starters were out. There is absolutely no reason that the Florida defense should give up a third and 19 ever. There's no reason. There's no excuse. There's no reason that that's okay. There's no deflecting it. There's no saying, well, we were were without this person or this person. You should never give up a third and 19. And that's on Todd Grantham for only rushing three on that play. That's on the secondary that got torched. And really, kudos to Lane Kiffin and to Matt Corral that made that happen, that saw that they could get a conversion on third and 19 after a huge hit by Ventura Miller just to give it right back to Ole Miss. And I believe that they scored uh, on the very next play. So 
that's a concern. Third down defense continues to be a concern, but I'm going to withhold that being a problem. That's what there's a difference in saying that's a concern and a problem. I want to see how this group functions against a, we're going to call it inept South Carolina team. Um, and we'll talk about that a little, a little later on. So I'm going to withhold full judgment. I'm just saying right now, based off of what I've seen, uh, it's a concern. Fair. I, I guess you can't really say anything is a concern or, or you really, you really can't even say anything is necessarily a success or anything is a threat aside from what we already knew. Like we already knew Kyle Pitts and Kyle Trask were both weapons last year. We didn't, you can't say we learned anything new from one game. Like we can't say, we can't say that Malik Davis is back. Malik Davis is in 2017 form. It was one game. You know, let's see him do it against South Carolina next week. Let's see him do it against Texas A&M the week after. He has three straight games like that. Sure, we can have that discussion, but we're not there yet. So one game doesn't really set a rule for better or worse. All right, so Casey's given his hidden gems. I've given my hidden gems. How about the host, Dustin? What was your hidden gem or hidden gems? Yeah, I'll be quick. I'll leave it at one. I was super impressed with Trent Whitmore. Ooh, good call. I was not expecting much out of him at all. Being a mid-range three-star player coming in, he had, he had three catches for 27 yards, I believe, and he made all the right plays. When he had the ball in his hands, he, he knew where to go to get the first down. I thought he made impressive catches. His eyes are in the right place when he's on the field to play, and I, I think he's being coached well. Um, I always knew that Gonzalez – was an excellent developer of talent, but I was not expecting Trent Whitmore to see the field uh, this early in his career. I think it's a testament to coaching. And I think it's also a testament to his work ethic and how much he loves being a Gator. Honestly, I was expecting players like Rick Wells and uh, Justin Shorter, but it was really Whitmore that stood out among the receivers that we really haven't seen last year and now we're seeing this year. So, yeah. Uh, Trent Whitmore is my hidden gem. So, well, and and going along that point, um, out of the five, six, seven, eight, nine, twelve, out of the twelve Florida players that had receiving yards, nine of them had double-digit receiving yards. That means that we're spreading the ball around, and it means that you don't just have one threat in in the receiving room. So, I'd like to see that continue to next week. So that that's another hidden gem. All right. I like it. I like it. So we've shared our hidden gems, but now it's time to hear from you guys, our listeners. We want this podcast to be an interactive platform. We want to know what you guys think. So it's time to read some of your reaction tweets on the air. After the game, I tweeted out from the In All Kinds of Weather Forecast account. What were your thoughts on the game? Let us know, and your tweet might be featured on the pod. So we're going to each go around and read a reaction tweet that for one reason or another stuck out to us and we'll discuss it. So the tweet that I, well, first of all, there is a meme that someone shared trash pits 2020. So there was a tweet from someone at sports F six, eight, four, seven, seven, five, seven, five. That looks like a presidential campaign ticket that said Trask Pitts 2020, which I thought was awesome because yeah, those two guys do a pretty good job running the sec. They may as well get a shot running the country. Uh, the real tweet that, that really stuck out to me was actually a conversation between at Ken Muss 
and at who's the boff at Ken Moss said, I enjoyed the victory and the success of the offense. Think it's too soon to tell how good the Gators are. It was against a four win team who did not get pressure. Still have O-line concerns. The defense was shorthanded, but the lack of pass rush, poor tackling, leave questions. And my, this is actually my friend. At who's the boff is my booster buddy. Uh, the guy that hooks me up with some awesome seats uh, in the club section. So shout out at who's the boff. Not going to say his real name because he likes to be behind the scenes anonymous, but shout out who's the boff. And he replies, offense should be near elite this year. The, D, the outcome of the season will fall on the D. And he goes, hashtag turnover or points defense. And I think that is a very succinct, that is a succinct epitaph of Todd Granham's defense. I like it. I'm going to go with the comment by Jacob Hanna because I actually made this comment at the game. Jacob Hanna, 25. I don't want to see Mullen working in EJ, Emory Jones, in random drives. We have a potential Heisman winner at quarterback. Keep him in and don't risk hurting the flow of the game. When Emory Jones comes in, it seems like they aren't paying attention and forcing it. I had that same comment <clears throat> that Kyle Trask is red hot and Emory comes in and his first throw is an interception. I like Emory Jones. I think he has talent. I just think a lot of people are wishing that this would be very akin to a um, Tebow leak style offense where you had two completely different quarterbacks with completely different skill sets. My biggest complaint with Emory Jones has been lack of vision. When he goes in, you know what you're going to get. He's going to pull back, draw, and run up the middle. Yeah, you have to respect him as a runner, but again, if you are entering year three and you are the heir apparent in this program, you don't make that throw. You do not make that throw. Let it hang in the air, and it just landed right with the old Miss defender. Jacob, that was a really good comment, um, and I agree with you. Um, I think Emory Jones has talent, but I just don't think the way he's being used is is exactly the best. In fairness, you do have to respect Emory's arm because we saw him throw a laser. I mean, granted, the guy was wide open. Trayvon Grimes had 10 yards of separation in every direction, but we saw that he can throw the ball. So you can't just load the box with nine guys and only defend against a run up the middle. You got to defend against the perimeter too. But I think that it is fair to say when Jones comes in the game, defenses see it as – you know what? It is considerably more likely that he's going to run the ball than he is to throw it. And I think that taking him or taking Trask out of the game in order to insert that when Trask is red hot is maybe counterproductive. And yeah, I mean, certainly he does have an arm. You know, I I, I agree with Jacob's point that he it just it wasn't managed right, but I did appreciate Mullen putting Emery right back in when we got when Gervin Dexter got the interception and it came back. I did appreciate Mullen putting him back in there to say, "All right, you know we're not losing faith in you." Um, and he let a good drive. Speaking of Gervin Dexter, shout out Gervin Dexter, true freshman coming in there making a big play right away. Shout out Brenton Cox batting the pass down and letting Gervin Dexter make that play, picking it out of the air. So there's another. Uh, late insertion for Hidden Gem for me. True, and uh, shout out to Sean Davis. Um, you know, I thought that was targeting um, in the stadium. I rewatched it. It was an ill-advised play. I don't think it was targeting by how we look at targeting. So shout out to Sean Davis and uh, his tweet calling out um, the play as uh, 
well, it's not air friendly, but what uh, <laughs> what he said on his Twitter was that the play was not legitimate. The tweet um, that that's one of those tweets that if he's in the NFL or or if college football moves to a place where they pay their athletes, that that's going to cost him some money. But because that's not currently the case, I love that he did it because what are you going to do? You're you're not paying them to begin with. You can't find him, so might as well. So he literally went to the locker room, pulled out his phone, and typed that. What a stupendous response to what had happened on the field. Speaking of stupendous, someone that I really, I really like to follow on Twitter chimed in, Mr. One Bit, and he said, oh, perfect. The cows were just perfect. It seems Tony learned his route tree and is even more of a weapon. The O-line did amazing also. D, did some work. But when you factor in those missing slash ejected, it happens. 51, 1, and 9 all need playing time. And then he adds, also, it was the first game. As we get back into rhythm, I don't think we need to be firing anyone just yet. So I, I agree. I think the offense played pretty well. I, maybe I wouldn't call it perfect. Obviously, anytime you, uh, you throw an interception, even if it's not with your starting quarterback, uh, there's always something you can learn from that play. And when you're going up against better defenses, there's certain things we did in that game when we quote-unquote got away with that we wouldn't get away with against teams like Georgia or Alabama. As far as defense, I mean, Ventral Miller had an incredible game. He uh, He's definitely the player of the game. In fact, the SEC came out and named him Defensive Player of the Week, which was quite surprising considering how how terrible it seemed the defense played overall. But I guess when the guy gets 15 tackles, he uh, he deserves some sort of accolade. Speaking of which, shout out to Brett Heggie for being named SEC Offensive Lineman of the Week while we're out here naming players who receive recognition from the SEC office this week. Yeah, so we could talk about that old Miss game for a while, but we have a game, another game. I mean, someone pitched me right now. We, we Not only do we have a college football season in 2020, but the plan as is right now is to have back-to-back games. Who would have thought? It's quite phenomenal that we're finally in the midst of SEC football. And so let's get into a South Carolina game preview. So, Neil, you were watching the Tennessee-South Carolina film uh, a little bit before we started recording. What are your thoughts on the Gamecocks? Well, granted, it was just one game, but in that one game, South Carolina looked like a pretty typical Will Muschamp team. Not very good, but they're punchy, and they're scrappy, and they can hang around. Their quarterback, Colin Hill, looked pretty good at points. Not as good as Matt Corral did against us last week. He did throw a pretty damaging pick six, but... For the most part, he was able to direct long drives and hit some big plays when he needed to. I think the biggest difference between South Carolina and Mississippi is that Mississippi has a lot more explosive athletes on offense. For all their problems, Mississippi just rolls out athlete after athlete after athlete on offense. Between Kenny Yaboa, Jerion Ely, Jonathan Mingo, Snoop Connor, Elijah Moore, uh, I mean, John Rice Plumley. they just have a massive stable of playmakers. I mean, even, even Matt Corral beat us with his legs. They just have a massive stable of playmakers, and South Carolina doesn't have that. They do have Shai Smith, but 
Shai Smith alone is not going to challenge Florida sideline to sideline the way Ole Miss did, or vertically for that matter. On the other side of the ball, the defense looked so-so. They gave up some yards between the 20s, but for the most part stiffened up a bit when Tennessee got to the red zone. The thing is, in order to stop Florida's offense, you need either a ferocious pass rush or a secondary that's able to completely clamp down the Gators receivers. And I'm not sure the Gamecocks have either one of them. They did get five sacks against Tennessee, Kingsley and Nagbare. I think that's how you pronounce it. If that's not right, I'm sorry, Kingsley. But Kingsley and Nagbare, I believe it is, had half of those five sacks. And he could be a problem for Florida's offensive line if indeed we saw a mirage against Ole Miss and that Florida's offensive line played better than they're going to throughout most of the year because Ole Miss's defensive front is that weak. South Carolina also got some additional pressure on Jarrett Garantano that didn't result in statistics, but Tennessee's offensive line looked a little suspicious to me, so I'm not totally sure what that means. And as for the secondary, J.C. Horn is a very good cornerback, there's no doubt, but Pitts is five inches and 35 pounds on him. That's a mismatch. Trayvon Grimes has three inches and 15 pounds on him. That's also a pretty tall ask. And we still don't know about the health of Israel Mukwamu, their other top flight corner, who apparently is battling a groin strain that he sustained in the Tennessee game. And he's day to day. So that really doesn't help them. And of course, you have to mention the way that they lost. Will Muschamp, gonna Will Muschamp. <laughs> I mean, that's just unbelievable to me that you lose a game first by kicking a field goal down seven with just a couple minutes to go because you think you think you're going to get a stop and get the ball back and then score again but then when you force the punt it bounces off the leg of one of your guys and Tennessee recovers and runs the clock out which is as Will Muschamp a way to lose a game as possible might act, it might even beat the 2014 Florida-South Carolina game where we forgot how to protect our punter. I, I don't know. It's close. But anyway, my initial takeaway from watching their game film is, you know, you can't take a nap and expect to beat them. This isn't Charleston Southern, but do what you're supposed to do, execute, and avoid mis- stupid mistakes, and this is a pretty easy win. I'm less worried about South Carolina than I was but than I was Ole Miss. Um, just looking at <clears throat> the raw stats, Neil, just take a guess. What do you think their total rushing yards were as a team? I'm gonna guess ninety about. Dustin? Well, I'm kind of cheating because I've been looking at the uh, no. Well, then the you don't get stats to guess for the past three minutes. Ooh, you don't get yeah. to guess. So they, <clears throat> Neil, you were one yard off. Uh, they had 89 total rushing yards, and one of those came from um, their quarterback who rushed for a negative 12 yards. Very nice uh, for an average of 1.7, and then Shy Smith also ran for negative two yards. So they don't have a rushing threat. Their longest reception was 42 yards on one play, and they fumbled the ball twice. They had two total sacks, but they had six punts. They they had one punt return of negative one yards. So again, Neil made a good point that 
no, you can't sleepwalk through this and think you're going to win. But if you have a Will Muschamp coach team, they will find a way to lose as a Will Muschamp coach team. The fact that you were down by seven points, you then decide, okay, well, I'm going to kick a field goal down in the red zone, and then I'm going to hope to get it back is the most Will Muschamp decision that I can imagine. And we're going to be back with Ethan White. We're going to have Jeremiah Moon back. Uh, Wingo comes back this week, correct, doesn't he? Wingo, James Houston, Sean Davis, Kyrie Campbell should. Not sure about Brad Stewart. But this is going to be a Gator team that's a lot closer to full strength than the team we saw against Mississippi last week. South Carolina, they are a team with a lot of, with a lot of problems. And had Will Muschamp's buyout been less – than what it is. I don't think he would be the coach there right now. But see, the difference is they don't – I mean, at South Carolina, they're what – what are you expecting them to do? You're not going to go 10-2 and two every year. I mean, take this year out of the equation because no one's playing 12 games. In an average year, you're not going to go 10-2 and two there. What Spurrier did there is never going to be done again because Florida's going to be good. Georgia's going to be good. One day, maybe – Tennessee will be good. Hell, Kentucky might be good one day. Kentucky is currently running rings around them. So you're not going to do what Spurrier did for them. You're not going to go 9-3, and 10-2 every year. They're going to have to understand that their program is limited because of where they are. Well, the problem is they're spoiled. Spurrier made the Gamecock Nation spoiled and showed them that you can do it there. You can do it there. Will Muschamp isn't the guy to do that at any place. And you know, this whole argument that Will Muschamp is a great coordinator. Let's look back at Auburn. The one year that he was a defensive coordinator at Auburn, they finished seven and six. What, and Neil and I, Neil, we had this conversation on, on Sunday that Will Muschamp had a good two year run at Texas almost 15 years ago. What has he done since then? Defensive. I I mean, even defensively, he had a great team at Auburn. And they went to overtime against Jacksonville State. You want to talk what he's done defensively? He is responsible for the single worst defensive performance in Gator football history against Alabama in 2014. And Alabama in 2014, and it was there. So and he was responsible he, for know, giving up almost a quarter of a mile's worth of rushing yards to Georgia Southern, even though you knew that was the one and only thing they were going to do all day long. But this, this argument that Will Muschamp is a good coordinator doesn't hold water anymore. Well, he certainly doesn't look like one against Dan Mullen. In their two head-to-head games since Dan Mullen came to Florida, Mullen's Gators have scored a combined 73 points and hung 882 yards of total offense on them. And you can't tell me that's a recruiting issue on Muschamp's end in South Carolina because, hey, that's supposed to be Muschamp's forte, right? And, and meanwhile, Mullins put those numbers up with a roster that's mostly comprised of leftovers from the Jim McElwain team that saw McElwain get fired in 2017. But anyway, it's no secret that I don't have a particularly high opinion of Will Muschamp, and it's also not a secret that Casey doesn't have a particularly high opinion of Will Muschamp. But let's not beat that to death. Let's instead move on to the verdict and before we get to our game keys and predictions shout out to casey his his bold prediction hit last week he said kyle trask is going to throw for over 350 yards and he got it 
Kyle Trask threw for over 400 yards. So Casey's bold prediction hit. And Casey hitting on his bold prediction last week has kind of um, inspired us to do our own bold predictions. So we're going to do one for the Gators and one somewhere else in the SEC. So my bold prediction for the Gators this week is that the Gators will get at least five sacks as a team. At least five sacks as a team. I don't really – I don't really trust South Carolina's offensive line. Um, and they do get James Houston back, and they do get uh, presumably uh, Kyrie Campbell back. For the SEC, my bold prediction is that Auburn just takes Georgia to the woodshed and just bludgeons them. So I, I know that game's in Athens. Um, I, don't, I don't care. I think Auburn just puts them – in a headlock and just squeezes until there's nothing left. I think that's going to be at least a 30 point win for Auburn. Georgia did not look like they're in a good spot against Arkansas. So my bold prediction this week, we Evan McPherson will hit another 50 plus yard field goal. He had a 55 yarder that could have gone for another five yards. They definitely had space and room to do that. My bold sec prediction since Neil Sort of took mine. I don't think Auburn will bludgeon Georgia. I think Auburn will beat Georgia. But outside of that, I am going to say Alabama cut the spread against Texas A&M. The spread is 16 and a half. I don't think that's going to be remotely close. And I think we all need to be Alabama fans this weekend to rough up A&M before we get them next weekend. That's my bold conference prediction. That could just make it mad. I like it. Yeah, I like it. And apparently – we all think that Georgia is going to lose to Auburn. In fact, during the preseason prediction special that we had with Ben Troop, I had projected that it would be Auburn in the SEC title and that Auburn would beat both Georgia and Alabama. We'll see if that happens. So hey, I know you guys old. both mentioned a Georgia loss coming against the Auburn Tigers, so I'm going to have to go elsewhere for my SEC projection. I think Costello has another 600-yard passing game this week. Woo! No question. I think that uh, Costello and Mississippi State get 600 passing yards on the Raiders and poor Felipe Franks. Um, anyway, so my bold Gator projection is I think that Kadarius Tony is going to get a punt return for a touchdown. Yep. Okay. Yeah. I like okay. it. Oh, yeah. I like that. So, I like that. Let's dive into what we famed as the verdict. Let's give keys to the game. One offensive key to the game keep Kyle Trask upright, like we did last weekend. Keep gelling on the offensive line. Defense, my key is going to be the secondary has to not get torched in the backfield. It doesn't matter if South Carolina is going to threaten us because Kellen Mond can threaten us with his arm. So the secondary has got to get better. So I think the key when the Gators have the ball is I'm tempted to say stopping Kyle Pitts, but that's just not going to happen. So I'll say limiting Kyle Pitts to less than what he did against the Rebels last week. If he goes for 170 yards and four touchdowns, again, the Gamecocks have – 0.0% chance of pulling the upset. And when the Gators are on defense, I'm just going to keep it very simple. Tackle. Make tackles. I've probably said that 
tackling worries me so many times that y'all are sick of hearing it by now, but that feels like the only real way Florida loses the game. It's just a fundamental thing you got to get better at. And I was worried that it wouldn't look too pretty early in the year, but South Carolina doesn't have the athletes that Mississippi has. So if we have problems tackling against these guys, oof, boy, that would not bode well for the rest of the season. So I do expect it to take a step forward. I think we're going to do better at it this week. I think form and mechanics tends to improve when you have more live reps at it in real game action like Florida did. So I, again, I do like Florida's chances to shore that up, but if they don't, this game might be a lot closer than people think it should be. I think those are, those are two excellent keys. When the Gators are at offense, I, I really think that, that it's important for the Gators to establish a running game, especially against a Will Muschamp defense that really likes to pressure the quarterback. When you have the ability to run, you really force the linebackers to respect that. If you're going to th- just throw the rock all over the field, the linebackers can kind of cheat and uh, blitz and, and not worry about filling gaps as much as kind of pressing the quarterback. Um, so it's important that the Gators establish the rushing game or the running game, and that coincides with offensive line play. I, as I think every game this season, key will always be, in some regard, the play of the offensive line. And I think that for this particular game, I think that's no different. The offensive line needs to play well. And when the offensive line plays well, especially in the run blocking, the running game will also be effective. And I think it's been said a hundred times, tackling needs to improve. If tackling does not improve, then we're going to be in for a long season. I really expect um, our safeties to play a lot better. And as I said on our preseason show, uh, safety play is going to be a very big key for the season. And I really believe the safeties uh, need to really step up. Uh, there's no excuse for some of the, the, the poor reads and mismanagement of assignments that uh, left guys not only wide open, but even guys that were covered. Um, they didn't uh, make the right reads to even make contact on tackles. There's two parts to the fundamentals of tackling. Part one is obviously – bringing the man to the ground, not just tapping them or pushing them or, you know, putting your shoulder pads into them, but actually grabbing and grabbing a hold of the man and bring him to the ground. But another major part of tackling is proper movement toward the player that you're trying to tackle. You got to move toward the right hip. Our, our safeties need to make better reads when it comes to where to attack and where to, where to make that proper hit. So yeah, as was famed in the previous, the previous two episodes with our score predictions, we're going to do that again. And uh, we're going to go with Casey first. Casey, what is your score projection for this game and why? The South Carolina offense is not anywhere near what Ole Miss's offense is. Nope. As Neil alluded to, they don't have the, the tools or the weapons. Um, this will be the first road start for their quarterback, and I know that the swamp won't be as filled as it is, but um, you still have to play in the swamp on the road. Um, and their defense is better um, than what Ole Miss um, currently has. So I'm going to say Florida 45, South Carolina 19. Um, I think the defense bounces back 
in a big way. I think the offense, you know, keeps on humming along. I don't think they hang on as many as we did with Ole Miss. And I think Emory Jones comes in midway through the third quarter to get some meaningful rep time. I think the sensible thing to do is to pick Florida to win big. I think that this is the juncture where it's necessary to point out that the Gamecocks beat a top five team on the road last year in Athens, which is hilarious. But that's that's part of the Will Muschamp DNA that I mentioned earlier of his teams playing up or down to their opponent, which in this case means that Florida should expect to take South Carolina's best shot. But put it this way, I was exponentially more scared of losing to Ole Miss than I am to South Carolina. I know what the Gamecocks did to Georgia last year. I know that Will Muschamp is going to have a punchy team. They don't have an answer for Florida's offense. They, they just do not have an answer for Kyle Trask. They do not have an answer for Kyle Pitts. They don't have an answer. I don't think they have an answer for Malik Davis. I don't think that they're going to be able to stop him. So I do think Florida's offense cools off a, a little bit. I don't think they're going to go for 600-plus yards again because South Carolina's defense is better than what we saw against Ole Miss. But this game should not be particularly worrisome. And if it is, it's a bad sign. So I'll say Florida wins – 3517. That's good considering earlier in the preseason episode you picked the Gators to win 3410. So it's not too far off from that score and of course you're allowed you're allowed to change it as you get more data and and, and see actual tape of both teams. I'm just adding so, a touchdown to their total because of what happened with the Gators defense last week otherwise it's essentially the same. Right. I'm going to let uh, the South Carolina head coach speak for me right now. This is all I have to say that I think this is what South Carolina is going to have come Saturday. And overcome the adversity on the field. Love it. So uh, we're just going to leave uh, good old Willie boy to have his adversity on the field. Adversity and predictability. That's all you're going to get with Will Muschamp. And, uh, and just as predictably, I'm going to pick the Gators to win. And it's going to be a score in the 40s. I was very pleased with my prediction last time. I, I did pick the Gators to win 41-31, uh, to 31, and that was probably the, the closest of any of them. Well, so, I'm sorry they passed my too, prediction midway through the third not, quarter. Not too disappointed with that pick. So uh, I'm not going to continue bragging. I'll just say I'm picking the Gators to win 45-6. to six. Oh, I, wow. 45-6. Oh, okay. I don't think it'll be that oh. bad, man. But, Neil – Will they overcome the adversity on the field? I mean, we can just continue going back to that. You raise again a good point, and again. Man. I mean, they're certainly going to have more than their fair share of adversity on the field because they have to stop Kyle Pitts from just lighting them on fire. They're they're in for a long day, and and like we both said, if they're not, and if Florida's the one sweating this out, it's it doesn't bode well for the rest of the season. I agree with Neil. If we are, if this game is not already well in hand midway through the third quarter, we've got a problem. So with that said, we made our predictions. We, we all uh, are 1-0. and know. Let's go and make it 2-0 and know for the Gators. And that's going to wrap us up. That's all we've got for y'all on this episode of the In All Kinds of Weather Forecast. If you enjoy our show, please help us out by giving us a five-star rating and a nice review on iTunes. We would greatly appreciate that as we continue to grow and develop. As always, we thank everybody for listening. 
And we hope you stay safe. And of course, go Gators. Go Gators. Go Gators.